Letter One of Letters from Hell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jonathan Jones. Letters from Hell by Valdemar Adolf Thistard. Translated by L. W. J. S. Letter One. I felt the approach of death. There had been a time of unconsciousness following upon the shiverings and wild fancies of fever. Once more I seemed to be waking, but what a waking! The power of life was gone. I lay weak and helpless, unable to move hand or foot. The eyelids which I had raised closed again, paralysed. The tongue had grown too large for the parched mouth. The voice my own voice sounded strange in my ears. I heard those say that watch me. They thought I understood not. He is past suffering. Was I? Ah, me. I suffered more than human soul can imagine. I had a terrible conviction that I lay dying, death creeping nearer. I had always shrunk from the bare thought of it, but I never knew what it meant to be dying. Never before that hour. Hour? Nay. The hours drifted into days, and the days seen one awful hour of horror and agony at the boundary line of life. Where was faith? I had believed once, but that was long ago. Vainly, I tried to call back some shred of belief. The poorest remnant of faith would have seemed a wealth of comfort in the deep anguish of soul that compassed me about. There was nothing I could cling to, nothing to uphold me. Like a drowning man, I would have snatched at a straw even, but there was nothing. Nothing. That is a terrible word. One word only in all human utterance being more terrible still. Too late. Too late. <laughs> Vainly I struggled. An agonizing fear consumed what was left of me. And that which I would not call back stood up before my failing perception with an unsought clearness and completeness of vision. The life which lay behind me. And now was ebbing away. But... Little good had I done in that life, and much evil. I saw it. It stood out as a fearful fact from the background of consciousness. I'd lived a life of selfishness, ever pleasing my own desire. It was true, awfully true, that I had not followed the way of life but the paths of death since the days even of childhood. And now I lay dying, a victim of my own folly, Wretched, helplessly lost. One after another, my sins rose before me, crying for expiation. But it was too late now, too late for repentance. Despair only was left. The very thought of repentance had faded from the brain. Not yet fifty years old, possessed of everything that could make life pleasant, and yet to die seemed impossible, though I felt that death even then had entered my being. 
There was death within me and death without. It spoke from the half-light of the sick chamber. It spoke from every feature of the watchers about me. It spoke from the churchyard silence that curtained my couch. It was a fearful hour. And I, the chief person, the centre of all that horror, every eye upon me, every ear listening for my parting breath, a shudder went through me. I felt as one already buried, buried alive. One thought of comfort seemed left. I snatched at it. It won't go worse with you than with most people. Is there anything that could have shown the depth of my wretchedness more clearly than the fact that I could comfort myself with such miserable assurance? Was it not the very cause of all my misery that I had come by the broad way, chosen by the many? But what avails it now to depict the horrors of my last struggle, since no living soul could comprehend my sufferings or understand what I felt on entering the gates of death? Hell was within me. No, no, it was as yet but approaching. The end drew nigh. Once more I raised my eyes and beheld the terror distorting my own features, reflected from the faces that watched me. A deep-drawn sigh, a gurgling moan, a last convulsive wrench, and I was gone. An unknown sensation laid hold of me. What was this I felt? Death had clutched my every fibre, but I seemed released, free, strangely free. Consciousness had been fading, but was returning even now, waking as from a swoon. Where was I? Mist and night, desolation and emptiness enveloped me, but the dismal space could not be called dark, for I could see although there was not a ray of light to aid me. The first feeling creeping through me was a sensation of cold, of inward cold, rising from the very roots of being. Chill after chill went through me. I shuddered with chattering teeth, and an indescribable loathing seized me, born of the nauseous vapours that wrapped me about. Where was I? My mind reverted to the story of the rich man who, having died lifted up his eyes in hell. Was I the rich man? But that could not be. For him, the story tells that he longed for a single drop of water to cool his tongue, and it says he was tormented in flame. Now I was shivering, shivering with a fearful cold. Yet it was true, nevertheless terribly true, about the tormenting fire, as I found out ere long. But consciousness at first seemed returning chiefly to experience an indescribable feeling of nakedness, which indeed might explain the terrible cold assailing me. I still believed in my personal identity, but was merely a shadow myself. The eye which saw, the teeth which chattered, did not exist any more than the rest of my earthly body existed. All that was left of me was a shade unclothed to the skin, nay, to the inmost soul. No wonder I shivered. 
No wonder I felt naked. But the feeling of nakedness, strong as it was, excluded shame. It did not exclude a sense of utter wretchedness, or the manliness my pride of former days had left me. Men despise abject cowards, I know, but I had sunk below the contempt even of such a name. Wretched, unutterably wretched, I was making my entry into hell at the very time when my obsequies, no doubt, were about to be celebrated on earth with all the pomp befitting the figure I had played. What booted it that some priest with solemn chant should count me blessed, assuring the mourners that I had gained the realms of glory, where tears are wiped away and sorrow is no more? What booted it, alas, since I, a miserable I, was even then awaking to the pangs of hell. Woe is me, oh, woe indeed. I hastened onward. Was that earth or what that touched my feet? It was soft, spongy, a queer pavement. Possibly it consisted of those good intentions with which, as someone has pointed out, the road to hell is paved. Walking felt strangely unpleasant, but... I got along, walking or flitting, I know not which, nor yet how fast, on I went through mist or darkness or whatever it was. In the far distance, it might be some thousands of miles away, I perceived a glimmering light, and instinctively toward that light I directed my course. The mist seemed to grow less dense, forms took shape about me, but they might be merely the work of imagination. Shadowy outlines of castles, palaces, and houses appearing through the mist. Sometimes it was as if my blind haste carried me right through one of these ghostly structures. After a while, I began to distinguish human phantoms flitting along, singly at first, but soon in great number. I viewed them with horror fully aware at the same time that they were merely beings, like myself. Suddenly a troop of these spirits surrounded me. I burst from them tremblingly, but only to be seized upon by another troop. I say seized upon, for they snatched at me eagerly, as if each one meant to hold me fast, shade though I was. Vainly they tried to detain me, raising their cries incessantly, but what cries! Their voices fell on my ear as a miserable wheezing, a dismal moaning. In my horror, I gave a scream, and lo, it was the same puny, frightful sound. There was such a whir of voices, I could not possibly make them out. Not at least beyond certain constantly repeated questions like, Whence do you come? or what is the news? Poor me, what cared I for the news left behind? It was not so much the question whence, but rather its awful opposite, whither bound, that filled my soul. Luckily there were other miserable wanderers speeding along the same road, and while the swarming troops tried to stop them I managed to escape. And I went, panting, 
not for bodily but spiritual distress, till at last I reached a lonely spot where I might try to collect myself. Collect myself? What was there left to collect? What availed it to consider, since I was lost, hopelessly lost? Overpowered with that thought, I sank to the ground. This, then, was what I'd come to. I died, and found myself in hell, in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of torment, alas, beyond conception. This, then, was the end of life's enjoyment. Why, ah, oh, why, had I been satisfied to halt between faith and unbelief, between heaven and hell, to the last moment? A few short months ago, or who knows, perhaps even a few days before the terrible end, it might have been time still to escape so dire a fate. But blindly I'd walked to destruction. Blindly? Nay, open-eyed. And I deserved no better. This latter thought was not without a touch of bitter satisfaction. After all, even hell had something left that resembled satisfaction. But in truth, I hated myself with a burning, implacable hatred in spite of the self-love which had accompanied me hither unimpaired. And remembering the many so-called good intentions of my sinful life, I felt ready to tear myself to pieces. In sooth, I myself had assisted diligently in paving the road to hell. But that feeling was void of contrition. I felt sad. I felt ruined and miserably undone. I condemned, I cursed myself, but repentance was far from me. Oh, could I but repent. I know there is such a thing, but the power of repenting is gone, gone forever. I did not at first see myself and my position as I do now. I only felt miserable and hopelessly lost. And though I hated myself, at the same time I pitied myself most deeply. Would that I could have wept. Poor dive sighed for a drop of water. I kept sighing for a tear a pure human tear, for somehow I felt that tears could unbind me from all my grief. I consumed my powers in vain efforts to weep, but even tears were of the good things beyond me now. The effort shook my soul, but it was vain, vain. I started suddenly. There was a voice beside me, a young woman with a babe on her arm. It is hopeless trying she said almost tenderly, her features even more than her voice bespeaking sympathy. I myself have tried it and tried again, but it's no use. There is no water here, not as much as even as a single tear. Alas, I felt she spoke the truth. The time was when I might have wept, but I would not. Now I long to weep, but could not. The young woman, well, she was hardly more than a girl, sat down beside me. 
indescribably touching was the expression of sorrowing fondness with which she gazed upon the babe in her lap, a tiny thing which apparently had not lived many days. After a pause she turned again to me. It was not I, but the child which occupied her attention. Don't you think my baby is alive? she said. It is not dead. Tell me, though it lies so still and never gives a cry. To tell the truth, I thought the child was dead, but I had not in me to grieve the poor creature, so I said, it may be asleep. Babies do sleep a good deal. Yes, yes. It is asleep, she repeated, rocking the child softly. But I sat trembling at the sound of my own voice, which for the first time had shaped itself to words. They say I killed my child, my own little baby, she continued. But don't you think they talk foolishly? How should a mother find it in her heart to kill her child, her very own child? And she pressed the little thing to her bosom with convulsive tenderness. The sight was more than I could endure. I rose and left her, yet it soothed my own misery that for a moment I seemed filled with another's grief rather than with my own. Her grief I could leave behind. I rose and fled, but my own wretchedness followed on my heels. Away I went, staring toward the distant light. It was as though a magic power drove me in that direction. To the right and left of me, the realms of mist appeared cultivated and inhabited. Strange, fantastic shapes and figures met my view, but they seemed shadows only of things and men. Much that I saw filled me with terror, while everything added to my pain. By degrees, however, I began to understand that wretched negativeness of existence. I gathered experience as I went on, but what experience? Let me bury it in silence. One incident I will record, since it explains how I first came to comprehend that horror-teeming state of things. I was stopping in front of one of those transparently shadowy structures. It appeared to be a tavern. In the world I used to despise such localities, and would never have demeaned myself by entering one. But now it was all the same to me. They were making merry within. I saw drinking, gambling, and what not. But it was an awful merriment in which these horrible shades were engaged. One of them, to all appearances the landlord, beckoned me to enter. An inviting fire was blazing on the hearth, and shivering as I was, I went towards it straightway. "'Can't you come in by the door?' snarled the landlord, stopping me rudely. Abashed, I stammered, I'm, I'm so cold, so miserably cold.' And more for you for going naked, cried the fellow with an ugly grin. We admit well-dressed people as a rule. Involuntarily I thought of my soft Turkish dressing-gown and its warm belongings, 
when lo, scarcely had the idea been shaped in my brain, than I found myself clothed in dressing gown, smoking cap and slippers. At the same time, my nakedness was not covered, and I felt as cold as before. I moved towards the hearth, putting my trembling hands to the grate, but the blaze emitted no warmth. It might as well have been painted on canvas. I turned away in despair. The merry-making chaise laughed harshly, calling me a fool for my pains. One of them handed me a goblet. Now, I'd never been a drunkard, but that feeling of indescribable emptiness within me prompted me to seize the cup, and lifting it to my lips, I eagerly that I might drain it on the spot. But alas, the nothingness. My burning desire found it an empty cup, and I felt ready to faint. My horror must have expressed itself in my features, for they laughed louder than ever, grinning at my disappointment. I bore it quietly. There was something frightfully repulsive in their unnatural merriment, cutting me to the soul. The carousal continued, and I, with wildly confused ideas, watching the strange revelry. Recovering myself, I turned to the churlish landlord. Uh, what house is this? I asked with a voice as unpleasant and snarling as his own. Is my house. That's not much of information, so I asked again after a while. How did it come to be here? The house, I mean, and everything. The landlord looked at me with a sneer that plainly said, You green all you. Vouchsafing, however, presently, how it came here. Why? I thought of it, and then it was. That was light on the subject. Then the house is merely an idea, I went on. Yes, of course. What else should it be? Ah, indeed, youngster, cried one of the gamblers, turning upon me. Here we are in the true land of magic, the like of which was never heard on earth. We need but imagine a thing, and then we have it. Hurrah, I say, tis a merry place. And with a frightful laugh that betokened anything but satisfaction, he threw the dice upon the table. Now I understood. The house was imaginary, the fire without warmth, the tapers without light, the cards, the dice, the drink, the torn apron, even of the landlord. Everything, in short, existed merely in imagination. One thing only was no empty idea. But fearful reality, the terrible necessity which forced these shadowy semblances of men to appear to be doing now in the spirit the very thing they did in the body upon earth. For this reason the landlord was obliged to keep a low tavern. For this reason the company that gathered there must gamble, drink and swear, pretending wanton merriment, despair gnawing their hearts the while. I looked to myself. This clothing, then, which could not cover me, far less warm my frozen limbs, was but the jugglery of desiring thought. Lie, falsehood away, I cried. Oh, that I could get away from myself. Alas, wretch that I was, I could at best escape, but the clothing was no clothing. I tore it from me, rushing away in headlong flight, conscious only of my own miserable nakedness, fiendish 
peals of laughter following me like the croaking of multitudinous frogs. How long I wandered, restless spirit that I was, I cannot tell. If there was such a thing as division of time in hell, doubtless it would be imaginary like everything else. The distant light was still my goal, but so far from reaching it I seemed to perceive that it grew weaker and weaker. This at first I took to be some delusion on my part, but the certainty presently was beyond a doubt. The light did decrease till at last it was the merest ghost of a radiance. It was plain I should find myself in utter darkness before long. It was a fact then scarcely to believe, but a fact nevertheless that, miserable as I was, I could be more miserable still. I shrunk together within myself, anxious, as far as lay within me, to escape the doings of the dead. People on earth may think that even in Hades it must be a blessing rather than a bane to occupy one's thoughts with the affairs of others. Oh, happy mortals, happy with all your griefs and woes, you judge according to your earthly capacities. There is no such blessing here, no occupying one's thoughts against their own dire drift. And as for diversion, that miserable anodyne for earthborn trouble, it is a thing of the past once you have closed your eyes in death. It is impossible for me to tell you, since you could not comprehend, to what extent a man here may shrink together within himself. Be it enough to say I cowered as a toad in a hole, hugging my miserable being till I was roused by a groan coming from somewhere beside me. I started affright and looked about. The darkness being still increasing, I, with difficulty, distinguished another cowering figure looking at me furtively. The face was strangely distorted, and the creature had a rope round its neck, the hands being constantly trying to secure the ends. At times also a finger would move round the neck as if to loosen the rope. The figure looked at me with eyes of terror starting from the head, but not a word would cross the lips. It was plain I must make the beginning. The light is decreasing, I said, pointing in the direction whence the pale glimmer emanated. I fear we should be quite in the dark presently. Yes, said the figure with a gurgling voice. It, it will be night directly. How long will it last? How should I know? It may be some hours, it may be a hundred years. Is there such difference of duration? We don't perceive the difference. It is always long, frightfully long, said the figure with a dismal moan. But it is quite certain, is it not, that daylight will reappear? If you call that daylight, which we used to call dusk upon earth, we never get more. I strongly suspect that it is not daylight at all. However, that matters little. I see you are a newcomer here. I could but answer with a sigh. Yes, quite new. I died but lately. A natural death? queried the spectre. To be sure, what else? That what else evidently displeased the creature. The distorted face looked at me with a horrible grimace, and there was silence. I, for my part, 
gave little to continue so unpleasant a conversation, but the spectre resumed ere long. It is hard to be doomed to carry one's life in one's hands. There is no rest for me anywhere. I am forever trying to escape. There is not a creature but wants to hang me. Indeed, you are capable of doing it yourself. I see it in your eyes. Only being fresh here, you are too bewildered as yet with your own fate to be really dangerous. Do you see the end of this rope? It is my one aim to prevent people getting hold of them, for if once they succeed, I shall be hanged in a jiffy. Inspector paused, going on presently. It is but foolishness and imagination, I know, but for since no one else can take what I have not got, how should anyone take my life? But I am utterly helpless, and whenever this foolish fear possesses me afresh, I must run, and run as though I had a thousand lives to lose, as though hell were peopled with murderous hangmen. The spectre moaned, again trying to loosen the rope with a finger, and the moaning died away into silence. We sat, but not for long. I made some movement with the arm nearest my wretched neighbour. Evidently he imagined I was seizing the rope, the ends of which he was tightly grasping, and like a flash of lightning he vanished from my side. End of letter one Thank you for listening, and if you like this, please subscribe and consider liking my Facebook page and joining my group, Jesus Answers Prayer. May God bless your day. Hola, somos Mark y Pearl Lambert, y somos los ministros de Jesús Responde las Oraciones. Si le gusta este ministerio, por favor ayúdenos a apoyarlo. El enlace para donar se encuentra en la descripción a continuación. Gracias y Dios te bendiga.